Right now is the most critical time for us to take back control of our food supply and become self-reliant by having our very own food forest. Transform your yard into a food forest and create a system of self-reliance that's easy and enjoyable with our friends at Food Forest Abundance. No matter where you're starting from, you can become more self-reliant. You can take your self-reliance to the next level by becoming a producer of your own food through growing and foraging. Learn how to turn your property into an income-producing source of economic self-reliance. If you're ready to go off-grid, click the link in the description and use coupon code FORBIDDEN for discounts on your very own food forest with Food Forest Abundance. Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. First, I have a couple of announcements. Check out our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News. It's also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network, where you'll find some of your favorite podcasts from our community featured. Podcasts like Raised by Giants, Going Down the Rabbit Hole, Understanding Propaganda, Day Zero, and What the Frick Live, and many more. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Check out Rockfin. This is where you get our premium content, as well as all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin for only $10 a month. You just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus. That's R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash FKN plus to sign up now. If you'd like to help with a donation for the documentary production, you can go to supportfkn.com or we have a PayPal link in the description. Anything is greatly appreciated. Any donation of $5 or more through supportfkn.com, you get access to Corey Hughes' secret JFK forum and tons of information that will be going into his upcoming book. Today I want to welcome Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He is a public speaker, researcher, natural healing practitioner, business and homeschooling consultant, inventor, and COVID-19 whistleblower. His new practice is spreading truth about the world we live in today and fighting for freedom. He teaches people the vital knowledge that they need to implement true care for themselves and their families at the highest level of consciousness. He now teaches people how to become their own health authority. Dr. Kaufman, welcome. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? 
I'm excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Been looking forward to this. You were one of the first voices that I heard on some of the regular podcasts that I listened to that was not only speaking out uh, speaking out against the COVID nonsense, but really calling out the medical and pharmaceutical industries for what they really are and discussing the true nature of sickness and disease in a way that really got me thinking differently about the nature of sickness, viruses, bacteria, and the powers of the human body. Now, this is your first time on. I'd love to hear about a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what led you down this path uh, really less traveled by medical professionals. Yeah, well, I think I had a kind of a similar experience uh, to you, um, except that I was in the thick of the allopathic medical system, uh, originally working as a physician assistant, and then I went back to medical school and trained ultimately in forensic psychiatry. And, you know, what I saw through all those experiences, so working with cancer patients, working with mentally ill patients, is that, you know, the interventions that came from the medical system did not result in uh, curing people or necessarily even benefiting them. And lots of times I saw actually the treatment itself was clearly causing harm. Um, in a number of different uh, examples. And so this, you know, it's interesting that this came about because it really was uh, partly through my education in the mainstream system that led me to this. And there was one really important experience when I was training in psychiatry at Duke University that they really emphasized, you know, what they called evidence-based medicine. And in the first year of my uh, residency training there, there was a weekly journal club group where we did what, um, what did they call like a critical analysis, I believe. There might have been a slightly different term they used, but they essentially taught us how to look at studies in the medical literature and dissect it, like to find, is there bias? Like, did they do the right statistics? Did they do the right protocol to actually have a, you know, good quality randomized controlled study that can give us some, you know, reasonable information to inform our treatment decisions. And because of learning this technique, and then looking at actual studies on antidepressants and antipsychotics, things relevant to our careers, everything started to unravel. (laughs) So you could see that the Uh, the way we looked at the evidence essentially discredited almost everything. Um, But there was still this inherent contradiction because on the one hand, we're reviewing these papers and showing how there's really limited or only flawed evidence to support the treatment. And then in the clinics themselves, we're being directed to prescribe these medicines that we just learned about aren't effective from looking at the studies. And so you know, that conflict eventually inside me led me to seek different experiences. And what I observed is that um, patients did not get better with psychiatric medications and many times got worse or more dependent on the system, um, lost their functioning, became physically ill. Um, I uncovered this relationship between antidepressants and suicide, which was you know, reported and even the FDA made a black box warning, but then I saw through my own observation evidence of this kind of thing. So eventually I came across some 
doctors and others who were working outside the system and started looking at their material and experimenting with things. And this led me to a whole new horizon of health, uh, you know, which it was difficult because I had to fully realize that virtually everything the mainstream medical system has to offer has limited or no value. And in fact, much of it is predominantly harmful and then make a break you know, from that system, ultimately, because, you know, I tried to be half in and half out or find a unique setting to work in. But ultimately, you know, you you just can't compromise yourself once you see the full truth of how biology and health really work. And so this led me on a path of really self-study that I tried to become a scholar of natural healing and understand as much as I could about it. And, um, you know, that's how I kind of came to where I am today. That's wonderful. Um, I'm very encouraged at the amount of people that are starting to realize the corruption and dangers in our modern medical and pharmaceutical industries. And it's really uh, mostly since a few years ago, since all the COVID nonsense started. Were you surprised at the level of coordination between the media and the pharmaceutical companies and our government? throughout this whole thing and now we have the monkeypox thing of course but starting with covid i mean what did you think when all this started well it it was kind of shocking to see the medical system itself becoming such a pawn of the establishment i mean you know for example the whole idea about wearing masks you know that's something that's been looked at quite seriously among medical researchers before you know, this COVID pandemic, and all of the evidence, you know, led to the same conclusion, which is there's no benefit to wearing masks to prevent uh, these infections. And that's why, you know, during the flu season in the hospitals, no one was wearing masks except surgeons doing surgery. (laughs) Now, you know, there's other observations like, you know, you go talk to some ER nurses and doctors. And they, all the patients who have bad flu every year, right, come to them through the ER to get admitted to the hospital or get whatever kind of treatment, but they don't get the flu all the time. You know, despite not wearing wearing masks, which, you know, don't do anything, it's like these things aren't, there's not really evidence that any of these things are even contagious. Um, But that aside, you know, I just saw the medical system just instantly go against all of the things that they've already known to implement, you know, the government's policies without really questioning anything. And then I could see that it it became, you know, an instrument of control because at first it basically cut off access to anybody, right? Um, New York was one of the worst places for this because anyone who was old that needed hospital care, they sent to nursing homes essentially to die. And then all the other folks that just had more routine issues, everything was canceled, like all the outpatient surgeries were canceled, all of the cancer treatments were canceled, um, right? So people were just kind of left out on their own. And then, of course, we had um, people being just afraid to get medical treatment. Uh, because they thought they thought they might get exposed to COVID or something. Um, but so th- there was this, you know, sudden total change in the healthcare system. And then you could see that it was working towards becoming some kind of surveillance system. 
that you know it would control access to all the services based on this kind of surveillance model you know do you have exposure to this or this infectious agent and even now when every all of the restrictions in our society are gone um, even the cdc said there's no need for them still the hospitals and medical clinics and such at this time right still want to require these things even though it's not even legal <laughs> for them to do, right? So so it seems as if they're, even besides just the financial motivations, which really were driving healthcare predominantly when I was involved in that system, there seems to be other forces now uh, yeah. related to uh, control and you know globalist agendas that are really controlling the healthcare system. Well, while we're kind of getting into these agendas, let's get into to, to one of the most controversial and which gets most people kicked off the air talking about is the true nature of what's behind this mass vaccination agenda. Uh, what is going on with this? We have seen uh, probably there's probably more deaths than we would ever hear about in the mainstream media occurring right now under our noses because of this thing. Uh what do you think is the the true agenda or agendas behind these vaccinations? Right. Well, I you know I just want to double down on what you said because I just um, I haven't even read the full paper yet, but I saw an interview about it and I skimmed the uh, paper that uh, Denny Roncourt and two other collaborators came out with, looking at the all cause mortality over the course of the last few years. And, you know, clearly they show an extremely high correlation between the onset of the immunizations, you know, or what they call immunizations yeah. um, and the excess deaths. And it was really, you know, in every country that it was like this. Okay. So um, what is the agenda? Obviously, you know, some of it is to cause mortality and morbidity. So not only did excess deaths occur on a grand scale, but also disability, resulting disability from, you know, non-fatal um, adverse reactions, which, you know, seems to be the intended reactions. Because if you look at the regulatory agency's response to this, it's been non-existent. If you go back in time to the 1970s when there was a scare about swine flu, which you know turned out later to not be anything at all, um, it resulted in the quick deployment of an experimental vaccine, just like today. Now that one wasn't you know claimed to be genetic technology because we didn't have that at the time, but a small but vocal number of people um, developed severe reactions and deaths to that experimental vaccine back then. And once they got to about 50 reported deaths, and these weren't, by the way, one of the criticisms that the, uh, is made now is that the reports in the VAERS system are not you know, fully investigated and shown definitively to have a causal relationship. But if you go back to what I'm talking about, they didn't do that then. They just had 50 suspicious deaths that seemed to be related, right, because of the temporality of the two events, that get a vaccine, then die, <laughs> right? And that's uh, very easy to look at. And they took it off the market immediately. Like they said, no one else is going to get this vaccine now because 50 people died, right? right? So now 
um, we have just from the initial Pfizer study, right? You have way more than 50 people um, in that study, right? With And that was how that data is how the FDA decided to let them put this on the market for sale, right? It wasn't an approval process. It was an emergency use authorization, but it allowed it to go on the market after it saw that there were already many more deaths than in the swine flu. And then, of course, those continued to roll in and be reported through the VARA system. And no action, not one government official has ever said, you know, let's take this off the market, right? So that's that must be because there is another agenda for this particular product and there must be intentionality to cause harm and mortality to people. Now, there may be other agendas. Um, It's very, very difficult to figure out because we really don't know what's even in these syringes. They didn't do confirmatory studies to say that like people who get it actually make something, you know, akin to the spike protein. We don't even know if it has genetic material in it. We don't, there's a lot of claims about this or that in it, but you know, we also have this other data that shows that it's highly variable what, what might be in it because there are much different outcomes with different batches of different products. So we have this big, you know, so could they, could this whole thing be a big experiment to test a, a number of things to test how lethal can we make it? What's the time frame that people die? Is it noticeable, right? Because if you have like, there were big spikes in mortality around five or six days after the injection, that makes it pretty obvious signal to see, oh my God, that the vaccine must have caused this. But if there's a protracted event, like someone takes it and then six or 12 months later, they drop dead. Like we've seen a lot of this with athletes, for example, Um, or they get, you know, after a booster, but it's maybe not that close in time, right? Then it becomes more difficult to see. So could they be testing those types of properties? Um, Of course, there could be other agendas because there's other evidence that there may be various types of technology included in some of these, right? Like people are finding uh, Bluetooth signal transmission, or they're seeing structures that might resemble circuitry. Um, And, you know, none of this is conclusive, in my opinion. However, it it certainly says that there's something going on. And so could there be other agendas there? Could this, you know, be testing some kind of implantable technological device that has wireless communication or some you know, other function, maybe, you know, monitors biological parameters, right? Because that's something that's part of the agenda and that there's technology that already exists to be capable of that. So there could be, you know, a variety of hidden agendas um, that are all part of this plan. And then, of course, you can't ignore the profit motive. In fact, I I think I recently uh, heard a report that the this, um, you know, injection has been the top single grossing drug in Pfizer's history. So, you know, it it has been a free for all for anyone in the uh, pharmaceutical and medical device industry to essentially provide anything that's said to be relevant to this and get a bunch of government contracts and, you know, sell huge amounts of it, Uh, you know, all being publicly funded, uh, not, not, not out of people's, you know, personal accounts. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is so nefarious. Now, what do you think is actually happening based on everything you've learned and all the evidence that we've got so far? What do you think is happening in the human body? Um, I've heard uh, probably unsubstantiated reports from autopsies that their people's um, insides are, are, are changing and their biology is changing in ways that we haven't seen before. Have you heard anything along these lines? Um. Not exactly that. I mean, what I've, you know, so it, it's difficult to interpret a lot of this because there isn't like a fully funded research lab with people yeah. who are used to doing this type of analytical work who are looking into these issues. A lot of it, we have kind of lay people that they know what they're seeing is very unusual, but they don't know exactly what it is that they're seeing. And, you know, it's not a simple question to answer. So I have seen, for example, several autopsy reports where they've shown that the blood vessels essentially have like these huge, huge clots mm -hmm. in them that seem to take up the entire volume of the blood vessel. And this has been a problem for the embalming process because they're blocking the flow of the embalming fluid and uh, right, because they're essentially blocking the whole vessel. Now, this is something that, you know, they're, there is a precedent. Uh, there's something um, called um, DIC, sorry, disseminated intravascular coagulation. And that's usually an end stage of a very serious illness, like that it could be cancer, some types of blood illnesses or leukemia. Um, you know, there, there are a variety of things that can result in DIC, but it's a very ominous thing because it has extremely high mortality. And what it is, is Disseminated means everywhere. Intravascular is inside the blood vessel vessels, and then coagulation is forming clots. So essentially, you would have like the entire blood system can end up being almost one big clot in that condition. So it could be that that's what is being observed here, and it could be that you know that I mean they call it the clot shot for a reason, right? So could it actually induce DIC? Now, to know for sure, you could actually take those clots and you could do some chemical tests on them to say, are they fibrin, uh, right? Be or are they the products of the clotting system, essentially? Um, you know, do they have platelets in them? All, all these kind of questions and get a better idea of, okay, is this, you know, just regular old DIC with a new cause or is this some unique condition? Is there, you know, new pathology as a result of a unique toxin present in these injections? So I think uh, it'll be some time before we get definitive answers, but certainly there's more than enough information for people to decide to, uh, you know, when anyone holds up a syringe that they make an about face and go the exact other direction. What do you think it was that we were actually seeing that they were calling COVID? Seemingly, people were dying at the beginning of all this. Uh, seemingly, there was something that people were getting sick from. I don't know, you know, if it's the regular flu. I don't have any idea what it was. Uh, but what exactly do you think that they were basing all of this off of? Well, so if you look, and I think this is where the all-cause mortality data is really helpful to interpret. And, you know, so I'm really only looking or interested in answering this question is I want to look at serious life-threatening illness, not, you know, people thinking that they lost their sense of smell. It must be a new, you know, kind of illness because that's always been associated with seasonal infections. Um, and it's, you know, something people were paying more attention to. But 
you, you got to look at this a few ways. One is in order to say there's a new disease, you need to have a distinctive set of symptoms or a finding of some sort that says, okay, this thing only happens in this disease. And that's how I could tell it's this, right? Like for example, uh, dementia, like most people just think of Alzheimer's disease, but there are several different, you know, distinct diagnoses of dementias that you, you may not have heard of, but there's like Parkinson's dementia, there's PICS disease, there's, uh, you know, what they call vascular dementia or multi-infarct dementia, there's Alzheimer's disease. So there's all these, you know, there, there are more that I'm not even naming. And you, you often, they all have a very similar clinical appearance, right? Like you, they cause memory problems. Some of them might be a little bit different, you know, from each other, but there's a lot of overlap. So the only way you could tell is a brain biopsy. So after they're dead, you can dissect the brain and you see that Alzheimer's has a certain type of finding that's distinctive and, you know, in a certain part of the brain or it could be spread throughout. And then the other, like, you know, like in Parkinson's, you see what they call Lewy bodies. They call it also called Lewy body dementia. And that's a different finding. So that's how you know those things are distinct entities because they have a unique thing that you only see in that condition. And in order to say there's a new disease, you have to have that kind of a criterion in order. Otherwise, how would you distinguish it from other diseases? Right now, there's really, um, you know, nothing like this for the flu, but we, you know, but we kind of are know what the flu is, right? It's essentially a bad cold and really colds and flu are the, are the same thing. It's just a spectrum of severity. We like to call one the flu we call another the cold, but there was nothing that came on the world scene that was anything different from a cold and flu uh, of a typical year. And every year it has a little bit of different things because it's, there are different things we might be exposed to in the environment. And, you know, we can talk about separately what I think that might, <clears throat> excuse me, be, but I think it's more important to get to the mortality issue. So <clears throat> if you look at during the first year of the pandemic, you know, before the jabs were, were available, what happened with the mortality worldwide? And what you see is that in some areas geographically, there were spikes in excess mortality in some places very significant. And in other places, there were no changes in mortality at all. Like most of Western Europe and Canada had no increased more, uh, mortality at all during that period of time. In the United States, we did, and it was really isolated to certain geographic areas. And I, in my opinion, all of this was due to COVID-related policies not due to any new illness. So for example, if you look at the United States and look at the timing of the spike in mortality, it was only within days of the pandemic announcement and the onset of the lockdown policies. Now, you know, viruses, if they exist, they're not smart where they, when the who makes an announcement, they suddenly take action and start killing people. Right, so it's clearly that the 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 death started when the policy started, at right after the policy started, and there were different policies in different places. So you had different mortality, like even within the United States, um, in New York, you had one of the highest mortalities because statewide they made major policy changes in healthcare, and that led to a lot of deaths. Right, overall, locking people down. Um, is has a known mortality, just like unemployment 
has a known mortality, like these relationships are well worked out with lots of lots of research. And so that's what would explain more people dying during that period, but not the emergence of a new illness because there's just simply no evidence of that. Hello, friends. I want to introduce you to my friend, Justin Padini. Justin is a self-proclaimed online court jester, comedian, and artist who uses his gift of humor to speak truth to power. Justin shares countless jokes freely online, and they're definitely not woke jokes. So please be sure to have on your big boy pants when you view Justin's content. He is also a featured speaker on the One Great Work Network and promotes other activists doing the great work. Justin is looking to reach like-minded individuals to promote the message of freedom and grow his network. Follow Justin on Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and the One Great Work Network. That's Justin Padini, P-E-D-I-N-I. All of his links are right in the description. Right. What do you think we are looking at? Uh, what do you think the true nature of disease and bacteria and things like the flu are? What do you, it, it doesn't seem to be, it seems to not be at all what our mainstream medical industry has wanted us to believe for the longest time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't know the full truth be, and no one really can know the full truth because all of the research over the past 100 years trying to answer that question have all assumed a certain philosophy, really the philosophy of germ theory. And the the problem is, is when you, you know, mo we, we all kind of grow up just being told that germs cause make us sick. And of course, this is what I was told in medical school. And, you know, I live my life based on the assumption that that was true up until right before this pandemic. And it wasn't until I tried to say, oh, okay, let me look at the actual evidence that germs make us sick. And then I realized that there wasn't scientific evidence of that. Now, there, there are studies, but they're not done using the scientific method because when they tried those originally, they failed. And then they essentially made up experiments that made it look like these things might be true. Like for example, with polio, right? So what we're told about polio is that it's caused by this virus, which is a, a type of enterovirus, which means that it, it uh, lives in our GI tract, our gastrointestinal tract, our gut. And so the, th the theory was that, you know, from contaminated water, that this virus grows and then we, you know, you drink it and, and then you can get polio uh, or something like that, right? So what they did is that they, you know, said that they grew this, they, they took actually what they did is they took chopped up spinal cord from children who died from polio because, you know, poliomyelitis actually means a specific type of damage to the spinal cord. And then they, so they said, oh, the virus must be in there. And then they gave it to experimental animals like monkeys um, and had them drink it. And of course they didn't, the monkeys didn't get sick. Not none of the monkeys got sick. And then they tried injecting it. The monkeys didn't get sick. And eventually in order to make the monkeys sick, what they had to do was um, essentially drill through their skull and make a hole and inject 
the dead rotting chopped up spinal cord from a dead child right into the brain directly to the brain Jeez. <laughs> and then some of the monkeys got really sick they got neurological illness and died okay what a surprise um right because yeah. you just put rotting flesh directly into their brain and but this is the experiment that's passed off as the proof that polio virus causes polio okay so this is not science here this is some kind of make-believe or misdirection um, in order to get the result that that they wanted but the real experiments don't show any evidence of it and i've looked extensively through many many like not of course not every single one but a large number of illnesses that are said to be caused by germs and the evidence is simply just not there mm -hmm. and some of the basic um you know information is is lacks lacking like for example with with diseases they say are caused by viruses they simply haven't actually proven the simple existence of one of these viruses to begin with so that that's like the you can't prove something causes something without actually proving that something exists first <laughs> Well, isn't there something fundamentally wrong with the way that we're looking at these things through microscopes? Well, it goes back to what I was saying before about like trying to do a proper experiment and not getting the results you want and then keep changing experiments and reinterpreting them until you can prove what you think is already true. Yeah. And so that's many times what happens through um, the use of things like microscopy or the misuse of it. Because one of the main problems why medical science has fallen so far off track is that when we use the microscope to observe organisms or parts of organisms, we first kill them first, you know, like we only look at dead material. We don't look at something living. And how can you understand the behavior and function of something alive when you're looking at it, you know, when it's dead? Like, imagine that you were, you know, an alien from inner space and you came and saw, you know, earth beings for the first time and you wanted to study them. You know, would you take a man and woman and um, kill them? fix them with formaldehyde and then make a bunch of slices of their body using you know a saw and then looking at it under and then and then subjecting it to dehydration um, and uh, heat and toxic dyes and such and then look at it under the microscope would you be able to learn anything about men and women doing that doesn't seem like you learn much <laughs> No. But that's that's the approach that they use to try to study um, most of biology these days. Not not you know even in the actual medical field, when they're looking at a blood smear, um, you know from a patient who's sick, they do the same thing, right? And you could actually observe those blood cells while they're living. The, the technology for a microscope exists to do that, but it's like it's not allowed in medicine. 
Is there you, a have you reason ever heard why of... they won't allow things like that in medicine? Well, um, well, they because it would probably they would learn things that would <laughs> yeah, make change everything right. that you know. So there's this great ex- anecdote about this, and this comes from I learned this from Adam Bigelson, who is uh, one of the sons of Harvey Bigelson, and he is the author of a book called The Holographic Blood, which is definitely something you you should check out. And he was originally, you know, a a DO, an osteopathic doctor, and he went an unconventional route and had amazing success with his patients. And one of the things that he discovered was that if you look at live living blood under the microscope, that you can tell all these things about the health of the individual. And he, you know, got a lot of notoriety for this in his day, and he caught the attention of a famous hematologist at Washington University, um, one of the, you know, most prestigious medical schools for teaching in the country. And he was invited there by this hematologist to, you know, come and look at samples under the microscope and teach him uh, what he had learned. And so, so Harvey, you know, got all his equipment, he brought it there, he traveled and he arrived and th- set everything up and they're in the office and this hematologist comes in and he takes one look and he's like, what is this? And he's like, oh, we're looking at living blood. And he said, I can't, I can't look at living cells. And he walked out and he refused to learn any more about it because he probably felt threatened that he would look at that and he would have to take back all of the stuff that he, you know, had published about and refigure everything out, re, you know, recognize that, that he was missing a lot. And, you know, so if you're going to make any um, inferences from looking at dead stained tissue under any microscope, you have to first correlate that with, a living organism in its natural state that you didn't, you know, dehydrate and shoot with electron beams and, um, you know, put in all kinds of toxic or radioactive uh, materials mixing in and, and all kinds of other things. Because, you know, how do you know then what you've got, right? Like one of the big mistakes that scientists and especially doctors make is that when you design an experiment or when you follow when you're treating a patient, you have to realize that what you're doing may actually be the cause of an effect. Mm. You, you, you're not an impartial observer. You're part of the equation, right? So when you do stuff to cells in a lab, like whatever you do could cause the effect that you're observing. And then you attribute that to a natural cause, but it's not, it's your artificial cause. And we see this in many of the virology experiments. And when you're a doctor treating a patient and you give a bunch of medicines or do tests, like you have to realize that those things can actually make the situation worse or could have even been the cause of the situation to begin with. And this is why when I was, you know, doing my forensic work and I would review all these medical records of, you know, a person ultimately dying, you would always see this pattern. They came in with a relatively minor problem. Then they got medical intervention. That intervention resulted in a worse clinical status. Then they got other interventions and then they got worse. And everyone who's working on them in the hospital is not, is never has the thought that what they're doing could be causing any harm. 
they think they're just doing all the right things and it's the person's sickness that's making them get worse and worse. Mm. You think that's possible that that could be going on with some cancer cases. I mean, I know we have tons of misdiagnosed cancer and that you probably better off not even going seek treatment for the cancer you have from mainstream medical industry. You're, you have a better chance of surviving. Uh, well, what are your thoughts about that? Well, even oncologists, if they're being honest, will tell you that because there's been a survey of oncologists, right? That's the specialty that treats cancer. And whether they would, you know, subject themselves or their family to their own treatment and overwhelmingly they wouldn't, right, because they know this. So there's other data that shows because, you know, they have a lot of tricks in how they present their research. And this is goes back to my, you know, Duke training that in cancer, it's considered unethical to do placebo trials because they say, well, we've already proven that chemotherapy improves your survival. So all we can do now is make trials where we compare new chemo to old chemo. <laughs> right. And so there's no way to tell looking at that if chemo actually is beneficial compared to not doing anything even. And, um, you know, here's like, I've learned that fasting actually can be an amazing therapeutic um, benefit in cancer. And the medical community, uh, the research established, they've actually also recognized this, except they only study it, putting a certain twist on it. So what they should do is they should do a study comparing water fasting to the standard chemo treatment for a particular group of people. And that would tell you, you know, which is better between the two. But instead, what they do is they add fasting to chemo and compare the combination versus chemo alone. Oh, that's, yeah. And then they show that the fasting combination is superior, right? And really what, what my interpretation of that research would be is the reason it's superior is because the fasting is mitigating the harm from the chemo. Right. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, if, but if you just did fasting alone, the cancer would actually get better. So, you know, this is kind of how they can manipulate things to give the appearance certain things might be beneficial but you know you you're what i what i observed in my time actually working with cancer patients was that the standard treatments only result in hastening your death and making it very very uncomfortable um i did see by the way a few people make a complete recovery from some very aggressive cancers. But here's the interesting part. So there was one type of leukemia, for example, that I saw maybe about four or five cases of over the two or three years I was doing this work. And it's called promyelocytic leukemia or AMLM3 for any doctors out there. And this, you know, so every other form of AML would essentially be fatal for everyone. But this particular one, somehow somebody figured out that if they give you high doses of vitamin A, it totally reverses. And so I saw several people with that diagnosis be cured, but they didn't get one iota of chemo. Wow. They got a vitamin. Right. They probably could have just eaten some liver or drank cod liver oil and got better. 
man. <laughs> they didn't even need the pharmaceutical version, most likely, you know, yeah. but no one would test that because they, you know, they think they have all the answers, right? But it's, it's interestingly for me to, interesting to look back for me retrospectively and see, you know, even at that time, I observed that nature actually has the answer of how to recover from illness. Definitely. And it just, it, I think my, my dad actually has a form of leukemia, very similar to the, what you were just mentioning. And he is, of course, very old school and he's very loyal to the doctors and big pharma and he does everything the doctors tell him. Uh, and it just breaks my heart that, you know, <laughs> he could be just doing such simple things and just be able to get better and this is there's so many people that are just in this same boat absolutely but more and more people um over the last couple of years especially are just becoming aware that other options exist and that people have a lot of success doing other things and you know it's it's a hard one because you know we have a lot of fear of death in our culture right this existential fear and people have not um figured out how to resolve the existential crisis uh that we go through and so many times they're so scared when they learn that they have cancer and you know hopefully it's accurate because many times it's not an accurate yeah. diagnosis that they just do the standard thing that everyone else does because they feel like if they don't that they're, they'll be missing out on something because they're so afraid. But it's really the opposite. It's that because of that fear, they're paralyzed and they're gonna do something that's gonna make things worse for them. Instead of just taking, you know, it's here's what you really need to deal with that situation, you know, is one, you have to realize that in your life, at some point, you're gonna have a life-threatening situation because we all are mortal beings. And you, you have to come to some kind of acceptance of that. And then when the time, you know, comes that you're facing it, you, you know, so let's say that you end up having some form of cancer. Well, it's important to accept that you may die as a result of that. But you can also say that um, you can make it a valuable dying experience. You can also say that that you're going to try to learn as much as possible and and you could have the hope that you can transcend and that your body can recover from it mm -hmm. and if you take this realistic but optimistic approach then you don't need to be afraid and run to that system or cave into the pressure from all of your family and friends who are you know, gonna, they're gonna put pressure on you to say, yo, you have to go do that. You have to go to the, you know, the cancer center or, you know, gosh, this is your life we're talking about here. It's not time for conspiracy theories or, you know, or supplements or whatever. Right. <laughs> so, so you really have to be comfortable. I mean, it's the same thing about, it, about everything with health is that there's a reality that we're all um, mortal beings. And so there's gonna come a time when we're going to be confronted with that directly and we have to be able to just accept that that we can't prolong our life in any situation we can't always save other people and you know running to someone else um, 
to so that they could profit <laughs> off of us really is not going to help the situation. Um, and you can learn what can help. Like what, what I'm really trying to do as a result of this uh, realization about the truth about health is learn, you know, I spent a lot of time learning for myself what does help your body heal. And it's your body does the healing, by the way. It's there, there's not a pill that does something to your body. There's not an herb or supplement that does, you know, that does the healing for your body. Your body does the healing. You have to create the right environment for your body to heal, right? Just like if you want to have a healthy fish in your fish tank, you know, you have to filter the water. And you, so you need to do those things to help your body heal. But, you know, it all comes down to that. And so what I'm trying to do is teach people the knowledge. This is how you can help your body heal from all these situations. This is how you can, you know, prevent yourself from even getting sick in the first place. And, um, you know, because we don't need to rely on the system or other people, except, you know, for rare situations. And, um, you know, but so it's important to, to have that in place, but mostly people actually can through without major expense, way, way, way cheaper than the current um, co-payments or premiums that are coming out of their paycheck um, can, you know, est establish a really, really high level of health in their lives and recover from conditions that they have been told there's no recovery from. Um, but just, you know, experience these kinds of, you know, they seemingly miracles, they're not really miracles, it's really just nature. And we, we have lost touch with what nature is capable of. But this, this is what is going to spread this information is when people see other people, you know, having these imp great improvements in their health, and then they want to know, what are you doing? And the answer is not going to be I'm taking this or that pill. Right. And well, something else that has been, I think, questioned by a lot of folks lately is if we sh should even have to uh, remove organs or uh, remove tumors or things that are inside our body uh, that we're told by the medical industry is making us sick, that if indeed we could heal ourselves, why would we have to remove organs or remove these things? I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, so what I've really come to um, to think about this whole issue, and, and this really comes down to my philosophy, is that we have to look at nature. And anytime we're addressing a health issue, we have to look to nature to see what type of harmony applies to these various situations. And if we look at the natural world, we don't see any evidence of animals taking things off or out of their body right now when there are times when the body purges things but it does it on its own right i mean we vomit we have diarrhea right those are obvious things now that's not a big object <laughs> necessarily but there so you know veda austin is a, a great example if you've ever um, heard of her she's a like an artist and water researcher and very interesting um, work that she does, but her she has a personal story of healing where she was involved in this horrible car accident that she nearly died from. And for years after that, she had just horrible persistent pain and other symptoms that were really disabling for her, that interfered with her life. And eventually she 
looked outside the medical system and found out about this ancient healing waters that I've, I don't remember if it was a spring or a waterfall, but uh, she had to travel somewhere and drank this water and also had the belief that this would heal her. And what occurred was, you know, sounds like a miracle, but I, there are many other stories like this, that suddenly she started getting these bumps on her skin and something was working its way out of her body. And she had no idea there was something even in her body. And it was pieces of green glass. And eventually she would like help them along the last bit by like cutting through her skin to pull them out. But they basically came from inside all over various places on her body that she had no idea they were there. And what happened is during this car accident in the, the back um, storage area of the other vehicle was a case of empty beer bottles that were green glass. Um, I think that he was a, owned a bar and was taking them, you know, for a deposit or whatever. And so these things all shattered and were, you know, projectiles essentially that got into her body. And none of the doctors, by the way, realized that this at the time of the accident. Um, So she didn't even know they were there. But what happened, her body purged them all on her own. She didn't need to have surgery to go in there and remove all these pieces of glass. And once they purged, she was then symptom free. She recovered completely to her normal body. Right. And there are many, many other people have stories like this. The same thing with even tumors working their way out of the body and emerging through the skin. Now, that may not not be a pretty way for it to happen. And that's not the usual way, by the way. Most of the times when people recover from cancer, the body from within takes care of the tumor, shrinks and goes away. The body disposes of all of the stuff, uh, you know, that that caused the tumor. Uh, through the normal, you know, ways out through, you know, you're into the toilet, uh, through your sweat, uh, perhaps vomiting, that kind of stuff, but not, you know, tumor coming out. (laughs) But, But there are cases where this does happen. So, you know, also the thing about cutting parts of your body out, right? Like, for example, um, one of the most common surgeries is removing the gallbladder. Now, when people have problems with pain and gallstones, it's not because their gallbladder is misfunctioning, (laughs) right? And it's not like we don't need the gallbladder, like it doesn't have a role. Like it's everything that comes out of your liver, all the toxic waste um, and the bile all go into that. I have to tell you, I was in this situation and I was duped. My surgeon, this was in my 20s, I had gallstones and my surgeon didn't even give me another option besides surgery. He's like, yep, we're just going to have to take this thing out. It's too bad. And I just kind of thought it was weird at the time, but I just went along with it like a dumbass. And now, of course, I had more problems with it than I ever did before um, the surgery. Well, you know, we perhaps uh, we can talk later. I can help you with that issue, but um, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, you know what the the main problem that I see is that medicine doesn't recognize the cause of or the doesn't recognize the correct cause when it does attribute a cause to an illness, and in most cases, it just doesn't know what the cause is. Like, it's amazing how many illnesses you learn about in medical school that that they just say we don't know the cause it's idiopathic and we even used to joke about that 
Um, but how is that possible? Like, how do we have all of this science and research and don't know the cause of anything? You know, they say a lot of stuff, oh, it's genetic, but that's not a cause. They, they, they can't say, oh, this particular genetic defect that, and, and then even if they did, why does that happen? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so there's no causality presented at all. So how can you design a treatment to change something that's that has a cause when you don't address the cause. Another thing that has bombarded our health and affected us for years is our modern food industry, uh, processed food and refined foods, of course, and everything that they're they're trying to force down our our throats from the mainstream food industry is a factor in destroying our health as well. Uh, and now, on top of that, they want to they want us to eat fake meat and bugs and i'm sure this can't be uh good for us at all right well um you know to be honest uh i'm i haven't really looked into the health aspects of so-called fake meat but it certainly is not what nature intended but but you're absolutely right i mean if you go to a grocery store or if you go to a restaurant um pretty much in all the developed world, what you'll see is largely not even what I would classify as food. And you know, what you call processed food. But if you simply just start reading ingredients on packages, you'll see that the ingredients are not food. Like if you were going to make something at home, you wouldn't have these things, you know, no one has a, uh, a box of maltodextrin um, in their cabinet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and of course, these are only the things that are in there which are disclosed, because if you, you'll find that any time that you have a, a non-organic um, food substance that has anything from corn, wheat or soy, that it's also going to have glyphosate in it. But glyphosate will not be listed as an ingredient. And there's um, this was studied by um i think it was the ewg uh but it could have been a different um uh body that did the testing but they tested all these processed foods and some of them a lot of them are recommended for children like things that are marketed as being healthy like cheerios had extremely high levels of glyphosate which you know according to the world health organization is is a carcinogen so essentially what we're talking about is that most of what's called food is either not even really food um it's just poison and then many real foods have poison added to them uh, i mean like produce you know fruits and vegetables have you know they contain poison for the most part like there are some that contain a lot more poison uh, the ewg refers to those as the dirty dozen and it's a lot of the summer fruits especially berries uh, for example, um, apples are another one. And, uh, you know, these, you, you think you're eating just an apple, but you're eating an apple laced with poison. So we have to be, you know, very diligent in order to uh, minimize our exposure to these things. And it, it can be very difficult. I mean, the more things you do on your own, the better, but even on your own, it can be problematic. Like, uh, for example, you know, I have um, a, a little house in a sort of semi-urban neighborhood with a little bit of a yard. 
And let's say I wanted to just grow some fruits and vegetables right in my yard. Well, okay, what's the quality of the soil there? What has it been contaminated with in the past? Like I see many of my neighbors are spraying all kinds of chemicals on their lawn. Did the previous owner do the same thing? Like is the soil filled with poison chemicals? And then if I grow plants there, I'm just going to be eating that. Right? So it's the, the, industry has really messed things up so widely that it's now it's very very challenging and you know even the the mainstream is aware of this like the usda who certifies organic uh, farmers in order to start as an organic farmer i think there's something like a three-year period of decontaminating your soil uh, before you can even start growing as a certified organic grower so you know they're aware of of these kind of problems and it makes it very very difficult to um, avoid exposure and of course there are other sources of uh, toxic substances and not all of these are substances some of them in include um, you know like uh, frequencies or radiation um, and other things but the just the substances you know from just breathing the air outside and inside have different different toxic substances things that we may not even think of like clothing actually leaches all kinds of plasticizing chemicals from these modern synthetic fabrics that are essentially plastic fibers and some of those are endocrine disrupting chemicals or there could be things that are additives or processing like flame retardants for example which are often used in children's pajamas and in furniture and such right hygiene products i mean simple toothpaste is just full of poison <laughs> so you know it's it's coming at us from everywhere and we you know can educate ourselves um, about these exposures and we can minimize them um, to a, a degree and you know it but there is a point of uh, diminishing returns you know and how much we want to change our lifestyle but even then we still go outside we still breathe the air right we may not have access to a pure primary water source so we we have to do something to help our body process and get rid of these things as they contaminate us um and you know overall we should be thinking about how do we reverse this situation on on a global scale that if we want to do anything to really improve you know the health of the population at large that those are the kind of things we need to be thinking of like let's change our whole food production uh, system you know let's change our industries and what they can just dump like let's stop using all these synthetic chemicals for everything let's start using different things that uh that work just as well um but don't you know have this harm let's let's just pay attention and you know when you when you talk to individual men and women, they all are already like this. I mean, you know, only the the very poor and disenfranchised are the ones, you know, who um, it's it's not a priority to take care of the environment because they're worried about survival. And so, one of the things is important to help, you know, lift people out of that poverty mentality, which is and and lifestyle, because that's mostly a result of our cultural um, influences. And then, you know, people who are not trying to survive, they all are concerned about how we interact with nature and with the environment. And it's only these big companies 
that do these evil deeds. It's not individuals. Like there may be some psychopathic individuals at the top, but you know, it takes all this cooperation from all these people to make these things happen. It's not just one person. And these groups take on a mass psychology that's different. And we just have to become more aware of this and say, all right, we just don't need that. Like my lawn doesn't have to be a perfect monoculture right it can we i can tolerate a few weeds in there maybe i'll even plant some clover to provide nitrogen so i don't even need to use petroleum-based fertilizer anymore Mm. and we can do this a better way right and just you know drop off the demand for these products and then they'll just go away and we can start to you know turn things around and let's put our productive um, inspiration and motivation into things that will make things better for everybody <laughs> yeah, you know that will right. create abundance uh we're in very critical times and i am encouraged because i already do see a lot of people starting to do things like this start their own communities start their own medical practices uh that all the you know entertainment media uh just all their own things because the mainstream system they're realizing first of all how corrupt it is and it's not sustainable and it seems to be collapsing before our very eyes as more people wake up so i'm i'm pretty hopeful about the future of everything especially regarding uh the health care because of how many people are seeing through it how do you feel about our future yeah well um i feel pretty um let me say tentative about it in many ways you know i'm personally trying to take responsibility for my own future that i'm paying very careful attention to what is the overall um, process that's going on, right? Which essentially is this uh, globalist plan, or you could say the great reset. So, you know, it's pretty easy to find out. And, and you see now that even in the mainstream that it's talked about openly as being a reality at this point, it's no longer a conspiracy theory. So you can look at what the plans are, and then you can look at what's happening right now And then you'll be informed about what things that you can do to both protect yourself and to avoid being assimilated into this kind of mass surveillance and control slavery system. And the more people who do that, um, that will have a richer infrastructure and the that whole system will collapse sooner because I don't, I don't, you know, every totalitarian, regime has always collapsed in time. And I think that there's a good chance that this one will collapse before it even gets on the ground, because already, you know, there's so much awareness about what's going on that I think people will decide, you know, to simply opt out. And, you know, so this leaves me very optimistic, but we have, you know, a road ahead of us to get to that point, And we have a lot of work to do um and it's important not to you know remain idle i mean you have to balance it but um you know one area that i i see that there's a real paucity of reporting on in this alternative media space is around the economic system and the impending financial collapse and i think that that's going to be a super important area for people to pay attention to because when they're you know I think it's quite clear that every everyone who's predicting anything about the financial system 
who is a financial expert. I'm not talking about like the presidential administration who's trying to do damage control and public relations, but, you know, financial analysts. And there are many of them out there and even very, very mainstream people like Peter Schiff. They're all, you know, saying we're headed for a major, major economic crisis. And that one of the things that they're going to try to put is to bring out this central bank digital currency. And so it's really important to start paying attention to this because whenever there is a crisis like this, most people are going to be unprepared and they're going to be majorly suffering. But there's actually an opportunity to even increase your wealth during a crisis like this. And the, the elites, that's exactly what they're going to be doing, right? Look at the, the wealth of JP Morgan before and after the stock market crash and the Great Depression in the 30s, and you'll see that it increased vastly. So if you take some steps, now I'm not talking about like that we should be greedy and try to be like JP Morgan, but you can protect yourself and have some resources where when everyone around you is perhaps even un, unable to afford food. Um, just by having the information and just doing some simple things. And, you know, like one thing, one thing that I'm kind of getting at here is if you look at the, the currency systems in the world right now, the dollar is, is very strong, but it's only because all of the other currencies are so much weaker. <laughs> so we're relatively less weak, uh, is really what's going on and who, you know, you have the BRIC system outside of the West. And what are they doing? Like they're preparing to become the next reserve currency of the world. Like the petrodollar is already showing signs that it's starting to fail. Um, Saudi Arabia is not requiring the dollar for all of its oil transactions um, at the present. And then you have the, some of the BRICS nations like uh, China and India that are buying up gold. Right. And so why are they doing that? Right. Because if there's going to whenever there is a, a current a failure of the currency system, the predominant world currency system uh, reverting back to real money like gold and silver is something that's really important because, you know, you have this dollar bill, which is just printed up out of thin air. It really is just an instrument of debt. And if you know, if there's this hyperinflation, uh, which might be coming, right? Then essentially this, this money becomes useless. If it's no longer the reserve currency, all the dollars that are all over the world come back to the US and it's flooded with so much, so many dollars that they each become worthless, right? So what do you have at that point? Um, but if you, if you have some gold and silver um, at, you know, in your savings at your disposal, like the physical metals, right? Then you'll, you'll preserve your purchasing power because when, you know, if that happens, that will still have value, right? Where the dollar might be meaningless, um, you know, an ounce of silver will still, you know, buy you 20 or 40 or $50 worth of groceries, you know, at the current valuation. <laughs> right. So, you know, simple things like that. And there's many other things like, I don't want to just say, oh yeah, you have to just get gold and silver or whatever. That's just one thing that that I'm doing myself, I'm not giving, you know, financial advice, but if you learn and pay attention about to what's going on, you'll, it'll be obvious what you should do. Right? Like, I think most people are saying I shouldn't, I shouldn't spend a lot of money now, I shouldn't buy a bunch of luxury items. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right, instead, maybe I should buy some extra food, 
or um, you know a water filtration system or you know or ammunition or you know things that um, would be valuable for survival purposes uh, provided you needed that and and things that always retain their value Definitely. right I mean I think bullets have always had a, a value food of course always has a value um, and gold and silver have always had a value in fact you know if you gold and silver have been money since at least ancient Egypt yes so and and have preserved their purchasing power yeah yeah definitely good advice and while we're kind of uh in solutions realm let's close on this you you were talking about fasting earlier as a good way to kind of upstart your your health care um what other what's some other advice that you would give people for for basic health maintenance and then to optimize it well, here you you gave me the perfect opportunity to talk about my uh, big project um, at the moment. So I think there's really um, there's two major aspects um, that that I've seen have been critical for almost everyone with a health problem. And now, of course, I've most almost exclusively work with people. Who, you know, who are, have access to adequate nutrition. So I'm not talking about people who are severely malnourished because that is another big, you know, thing that obviously affects the health, but the solution is very simple, just eat better food. Um, but, but what I've seen with all serious illness is that there one of two things, and usually almost always a combination of both things results in the, the body healing. And it has to do with water, and detoxification. And that those are kind of broad subjects because there's a lot of different aspects to that. But essentially everyone I've seen who has had an illness of whatever degree of severity, including a life-threatening illness, they have done a combination of using water and detoxification and to get better. And water fasting is really just a way of doing that. The water is the water aspect and the fasting is the detoxification aspect and your body by the way does the detoxification what you do is you support the body in a variety of ways and there are different um, ways that you can address different types of problems and different parts of the body um, to help it cleanse properly and part of that is from the right nutrition and part of it is using natural materials to facilitate the process and healing is, I mean, uh, fasting is kind of the most pure natural way because it doesn't require anything except water. And, you know, of course, a space and nature um, to do properly. So I have uh, spent the last uh, year plus developing a full comprehensive um, syllabus and curriculum called the Alchemical Detox Course that is um, available right now for pre-sale, but it's launching September 17th with a, a introductory webinar. And um, that course contains all of the information that people need to essentially design their own healing protocol to create the conditions and by the way, it doesn't just involve physical detoxification, but also psychological and spiritual detoxification, because you can't separate those aspects of the person, of the individual. And also many times the 
psycho-spiritual aspects are a major either cause or contributing factor to the health. Um, and it, I mean, it's a contributing factor in every state of health, but I mean, it could be the cause of even a serious physical illness. So it's important. So that's included, you know, in this curriculum. Um, but this is really the, I, you know, what I've seen over the last three, four years that I have been working with clients that I've been talking to other natural healing professionals, um, every case, this is what results in major healing. And so that's why, and, and this is something that you, you can master this knowledge yourself. I mean, in my course, I, you know, it might be appropriate for other professionals to take the course too, but I don't use all that fancy lingo and jargon. Um, you know, I make it simple so that you understand exactly why you would do this, how it works, and then exactly how to do it, like the practical steps. So I provide all of that information so that you you can take it and actually do it you know without any further um, help or assistance um, so you know so that's what i i really think is the major knowledge that we have to um, take in in order to to have amazing improvements with our health wonderful excellent information dr kaufman uh let the audience know if they want to find out about more about you and what you're offering what's the best way for them to do so yeah well everything is available on my main website andrewkaufmanmd.com you can find a link to the alchemical detox course there um, as well as um, the products i sell all the uh, videos i have out there most most of it the things I have out there are free in the public domain. You can definitely check out my Odyssey, BitChute, Rumble, and brand new tube channels. Um, I have a membership, uh, True Medicine Library, that um, every, you know, all my new material goes to first. And I actually have really trying to develop a full and complete archive of historical materials related to the pandemic, as well as tons of information on natural healing subjects, some protocols, recipes, and a monthly webinar. So, you know, all of my stuff is really mostly about education. I work with people individually with consultations, and I have a an apprentice, Dr. Grayson Dart, who also works with people, and he's another doctor that is transitioning to natural healing and working through my uh, training program. So you know, I, I uh, please come and sign up for my newsletter and you'll learn about all these things and whatever really resources right for you to deal with your health situation. Um, I have something to offer. I love it. Wonderful. Dr. Kaufman. Well, thank you so much. And I would definitely love with, to talk with you again in the future. Yeah, that would be my pleasure. All right. Until next time, everyone have an excellent evening. We'll talk again tomorrow.